0: The following is the second part of a multi-part series about the French Revolution and resulting wars. If you haven't listened to the first part yet, you might want to do that now. And before we get into it, I want to say that this is actually the second time around for writing and recording this episode. The topic, especially at the junction we've reached, is so complicated, with so many characters involved, and so much going on that after I recorded it the first time around and listened back... I felt it was just a long list of names and dates and treaties and wars rather than a story, and that's not what I'm aiming for at all. So instead, I threw the odd version out and rewrote it. What you'll hopefully hear now had a lot of the minutiae taken out of it, and instead focuses a lot more on the big picture of what was going on and what it was like for the people living through it. If at the end you find yourself wanting to know more, which would mean I kind of did what I wanted to do with this, then the best advice I can give you is to go to a library and get a book on the subject. Anyway, let's get on with it and start Rise of the Regicides, Part 2. Welcome to the Ravages History Podcast. King Louis XVI was dead. The event was a horrific shock for the crown heads of Europe, a king executed by his own people. What you need to remember is that at this time, almost all of the other countries of Europe were led by monarchs. One exception was Britain, with its constitutional monarchy. Europe found itself united against France and the revolution. They wanted to stop it, not just in France, but make sure that the revolution didn't reach their own borders. Spain and Portugal declared war on France basically straight after the execution, and a few weeks later, France declared war on Britain and the Dutch Republic. As a result of the growing coalition against them, France did what no other country in history had done before, or had been able to do before. They began conscripting hundreds of thousands of men, what was called Leve en masse, or mass mobilisation. Initially, it was just 300,000 men, But as 1793 drew on, and the Revolutionary Government found itself fighting multiple countries on multiple fronts, and dealing with insurrections and rebellions within its own borders, the National Convention wrote a decree that stated, "...from this moment until such time as its enemies shall have been driven from the soil of the Republic, all Frenchmen are in permanent requisition for the services of the armies. The young men shall fight." The married men shall forge arms and transport provisions. The women shall make tents and clothes and shall serve in the hospitals. The children shall turn old lint into linen. The old men shall betake themselves to the public squares in order to arouse the courage of the warriors and preach hatred of kings and the unity of the republic. So why had this never been done before? Well, generally the monarchies were not always very popular in Europe. And for the recent history of the region, wars fought within Europe were over small regions and areas over border control. Or, when it was out colonizing the rest of the world, the forces used were very small. The monarchs couldn't ever imagine giving the majority of their population weapons. And France, for the monarchs, was a perfect example of why you shouldn't arm your people. The people had raided and armed themselves, and with those arms, they had, again in the eyes of the monarchs of Europe, murdered a king. And when it came to the mobilisation of huge numbers of people, how were you going to arm them? One, two hundred years ago, that would have been impossible. They didn't have the resources or the technology to build the weapons and everything else in such large numbers. But the Industrial Revolution was at least a generation old by now. And with that revolution came mass manufacturing. All of a sudden, the time it took to make things shrank. This isn't a podcast about the Industrial Revolution, and I think the massive change it made to manufacturing at this time, and the knock-on effect it had on military preparation, is pretty obvious. Meanwhile, in Paris, the Revolutionary Tribunal, followed by the Committee of Public Safety, were both set up. The Tribunal was a court first proposed by a man called George Danton, and was set up to deal with the most exceptional cases – Basically those dealing with the royalists and people considered to be working against the revolution. As for the Committee of Public Safety, that was set up a little later when the coalition allies were bearing down on France. A major defection, the former minister of war joined the Austrians and that led to serious panic in the capital. And soon the city was gripped with fear of foreign powers and the recent anti-revolutionary revolts in other parts of France, most famously in the Vendee. In this kind of atmosphere, rumours spread quickly, and a lot of people believed the revolution was also threatened by agents from foreign countries, there to help bring about the collapse of France from within. Danton also has such a big hand in creating the Committee of Public Safety, that when it was first set up in April 1793, it was known as the Danton Committee. Now, we've already talked about the Jacobins and their role up until the execution of the king. But where it starts to get complicated is, of course, when groups within the Jacobins start to develop. Two of those groups, or factions, will play a big role in the upcoming events. The first group was known as the Girondists. They formed early on, made up of deputies from the Girondé region in France, and they campaigned against the monarchy, and over time they basically came down on the side of republicanism. Other deputies who followed the beliefs of the Girondists joined the faction, the faction met in a hair salon owned by a woman called Madame Rowland, and she had a pretty big influence over their policies, though the real face of the group was a man called Brissot. Brissot and the Girondists were influential in the Jacobin club early on, and there was really little difference between them and the second important group within the Jacobins, the Mountain, also known as the Montagards. Despite both groups having fundamentally the same beliefs, both being absolutely opposed to the monarchy, both being democrats, both believing in a form of republicanism, both being very willing to use force to implement their policies and neither desiring a breakup of France by a federal-style type of government, the group's leaders were bitter rivals. The general population of Paris, as well as being gripped with the fear I mentioned before, were also very frustrated by mid-1793. The promises of the revolution, now in its fourth year, had not materialised. Food prices were still high, poverty was still widespread, and the hopes of a better social equality were still no more than a dream. Paris was a cauldron, and the National Convention was pushing the Committee of Public Safety to rule like dictators, giving it extra powers to enable it to do so. The committee was seen as an essential tool to deal with the pressures of the various wars, both external and civil. The leaders of the revolution were afraid that all their work would be undone, so extraordinary but temporary measures were needed to be put in place. Historian Richard Cobb wrote, quote, The revolutionaries themselves, living as if in combat, were easily persuaded that only terror and repressive force save them from the blows of their enemies, end quote. Cobb also goes on to say that the reign of terror that's about to break out was a response to the circumstances of the times. Terror was used to try and crush rebellions, and leaders and participants of the rebellions were publicly executed, providing others with visible examples of what would happen if you did rebel against the revolution. But the Girondists' didn't agree with where the revolution seemed to be going. In fact, despite supporting the use of force, they were shocked by the riots this policy caused, and as the outcomes of the revolution became more and more violent, the Girondists were the fraction standing against the lights of the Montagnards. The Girondist membership continued to grow, with one famous member being a British writer, Tom Paine. They wanted to work to help re-establish order, and in the assembly they were radicals. But now, in the convention, there were conservatives. But their goal was just impossible. As I've already said, there was so much frustration in the failings of the revolution from an economic point of view that the revolution couldn't really just be wound up very easily. And if the revolution were to come to an end, it would all but end the influence of the most prominent Montagnards, such as Danton and Robespierre. In the national convention, the Girondists held the majority, and they rather arrogantly believed they were untouchable. But they really weren't. They may have held the majority as a single party, but actually nearly half of the deputies didn't associate with any group, and because the Girondists hadn't voted for the execution of Louis, instead voting for appeal to the people, they were left open to attacks claiming they were royalists. At this juncture, we introduce Jean-Paul Marat. Marat, was one of the great radicals and wasn't a member of any club at the time of the execution of the king. He hated the Girondists and fought against them in the convention, declaring them enemies of republicanism. Eventually, he started calling for violent actions to be taken against them, and that's when the Girondists fought back. Using their influence, they had him arrested and put him in front of the revolutionary tribunal. There, he faced accusations that he had printed in his paper statements calling for widespread murder as well as the suspension of the Convention. But Marat fought his case hard, telling the court that he had no evil intentions directed against the Convention. To the tumultuous reaction of the supporters, Marat was acquitted of all the charges and released. He had helped begin cries and chants that spread through Paris, blaming the Grandists for betraying France. Crowds in the capital were chanting quote, We are betrayed, end quote. The reputation of the Girondists was getting worse and worse. On the 2nd of June, two major players of the Jacobin Club, and specifically members of the Montagnards, Jacques Roux and Jacques Herbert, took control of the convention and straight away called for purges both politically and administratively. The Girondist deputies were Roux and Herbert's biggest rivals, so 29 of them were arrested straight away. Included in those 29 were Brissot. On the 10th of June, the Jacobins gained control over the Committee of Public Safety, and the reign of terror really began to take off. But this was the end of Marat's influence. He was forced to retire early because of a skin disease thought to be psoriasis, and as a result, he'd spend long periods of time soaking in the bath. From home, he continued to write and try and maintain his influence, but the Montagnards no longer needed his support. Rob Speer and others paid him little attention, and the convention basically ignored him. On July 13th, a young woman called Charlotte Corday came to his home. She said she had vital information about escaped Girondins and was allowed in. But Corday was not a supporter of the Jacobins. In fact, she hated them, and believed that Marat held more authority than he really did. She thought that if Marat died, the violence that went along with the revolution would end. She'd been left alone with Marat who was in his bath there she stabbed him in the chest cutting his carotid artery and marat bled to death in minutes the death of marat fueled the fear of the jacobins and its leaders becoming a major stepping stone in the terror just 2 days later charlotte corday was guillotined we mentioned maximilian robespierre in the last episode and we briefly mentioned that he was thought of as a radical even during the radical times of the revolution to give you a real feel for the man's radicalism, I'm going to read you a few of his quotes. To punish the oppressors of humanity is clemency, to forgive them is barbarity. End quote. Terror is only justice, prompt, severe and inflexible. It is then an emanation of virtue. End quote. And finally, quote, pity is treason, end quote. Robespierre was elected to the head of the committee, though by this time Danton had already been removed. But Robespierre became the most influential member and eventually formally instituted terror as a legal policy. At the same time, the convention adopted the first republican constitution of France, which was ratified by public referendum. But it was never put into force. Instead, being indefinitely suspended by the decree of October that the government of France would be quote, revolutionary until peace. End quote. Now, with Robespierre at the wheel of the committee, the terror would truly take hold. After the fall of the Grandists, the law of suspects was passed. According to the law, anyone at all was deemed suspicious who quote, by their conduct or their relationships, either by their words or writings, have been partisans of tyranny or federalism and enemies of freedom. Those whose actions cannot be justified in the manner prescribed by the decree of March 21, their financial means and remunerations from their civic duties, those whom have been denied citizenship certificates, removed by public officials or suspended from their functions by the National Convention or its commissioners, and have not been reinstated, those former nobles or the husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, sons or daughters, brothers or sisters and agents of émigrés who have not consistently demonstrated their commitment to the revolution. Those who emigrated from the interval between 1st July 1789 and its release between 30th of March to the 8th of March 1792, even though they returned to France within the time prescribed by such order or earlier." End quote. This law was later expanded by the general maximum, which set price limits, deterred price gouging, and finally allowed affordable food to flow into Paris. In October, Marie Antoinette was finally put on trial. She was given less than a day to prepare her defences against many different accusations. Most of them, possibly even all of them, were not true and came only from rumours. Some of the accusations included orchestrating orgies in the Versailles, sending millions of livres of treasury money to Austria, plotting to kill the Duke of Orleans, incest with her son, declaring her son to be the new king of France, and orchestrating the massacre of the Swiss Guard in 1792. Throughout her trial, she had kept her composure, but when she was reminded that she had not answered to the accusations of sexually abusing her son, Marie protested emotionally to the accusation. The women at the court, many of them being women who had stormed the palace and called for her head, began to support her on seeing the emotional display, where she responded with, quote, if I have not replied, it is because nature itself refuses to respond to such a charge laid against a mother. End quote. But the trial was just a facade; her guilt had already been decided, and she was declared guilty of treason. After the trial, Marie Antoinette wrote a letter to her sister-in-law attesting that her conscience was clear as she had not done anything wrong: her faith in Catholicism and the love she bore for her children. But the letter never reached her sister-in-law. Just two days after the trial began, her hair was cut off and she was driven through Paris in an open cart. At 12.15pm, October 16th, 1793, Marie Antoinette was guillotined at the Place de la Révolution. The next big trial was another facade. The 21 Girondists' fate was already sealed. On the 31st of October, they were taken to the guillotine and beheaded. Some of the other members of the faction had managed to escape capture, but most were either hunted down and guillotine or committed suicide. And not long after that, Madame Roland, the owner of the salon where the Girondists used to meet, was also guillotined. In December, the law of revolutionary government is passed, and power becomes centralised on the Committee of Public Safety. 1793 was a long year for France, And so far, we've just talked about what was happening in Paris, only mentioning the war against the growing coalition and various revolts and rebellions in passing. One of the most famous revolts was a royalist counter-revolution taking place in a region of France called Vendée. The conditions in Vendée were very different to the conditions in Paris and other parts of France. For example, the differences in class were not as extreme, and the nobility were regarded with far less disdain by the local population. Furthermore, a survey from 1789 showed that across France, the majority of the nobility lived in the big cities, while in Vendée they still lived with the peasants. There was also something else that separated the Parisians and the people of Vendée. Religion. I haven't mentioned how the revolutionary government handled religion, because I just don't have enough time to cover all the aspects of the revolution. So I'll just briefly say that the revolution was very anti-religion. Despite the anti-clerical rhetoric that was coming from the government, bishops and priests were told to swear allegiance to it. But most of them refused, and so the government followed up by persecuting the clergy. This persecution was one of the first major triggers of the revolution that was about to break out in Avendi. Priests were imprisoned, women were beaten in the street for going to mass, and religious groups and members had their land taken from them. On March 3rd, It was ordered that all churches close. The revolutionary government in Paris, knowing that the land they confiscated didn't belong to peasants, thought that even if the policy wouldn't be popular, it at least wouldn't be unpopular in the eyes of the general population. But the plan backfired when the second big problem for the Vendée people hit. As we have mentioned before, the conscription. Although this was done up as a great and patriotic thing to do, it was actually very unpopular among the people who actually had to go and sign up. The initial round of 300,000 men to be conscripted did not go down well in the Vendee. So in the area there weren't many revolutionary soldiers, and what troops there were in France were busy fighting numerous uprisings across the country after the demands of the levee were refused. In the Vendée region, it began as riots, but soon the local nobility and remaining priests managed to take the people's anger and directly control it, turning the riots into a full-blown rebellion. Each region had a quota of soldiers to supply, but the Vendée quota, instead of joining the revolutionary army, formed a militia, and called it the Catholic Army. They would later add royal to the name, and declared that they were fighting primarily to have their parishes reopen, and the now-imprisoned priests reinstated. The numbers would never be enough to take on the new Republic army in traditional warfare, so they turned to guerrilla tactics. The Republic's response was quick, sending more than 45,000 soldiers to the Vendee by the end of March. Initially, the Vendee militia were doing well, scoring several victories, which caused a much stronger response at the start of August from the Republic who ordered General Jean-Baptiste Carrier to carry out a pacification of the region through scorched earth tactics. It took a while before this policy was actually implemented, and one of the generals leading the attack asked what would be, quote, the fate of the women and children I will encounter in rebel territory, end quote. He informed the Republic that if his orders were indeed to kill women and children, then he would require a decree to be declared to that effect. The Committee of Public Safety, led by Rob Speer, replied Eliminate the brigands, to the last man, there is your duty. The militia suffered their first defeat on the seventeenth of October, which split their army in two. The larger of the two groups, some twenty five thousand men, moved to the port of Granville, expecting a fleet of British ships and another rebel army to be waiting to meet them. But when they arrived, they found the port city had been surrounded by a Republican army with no reinforcements and no British ships to be seen. Nevertheless, they attempted to take the city, but failed to break through. After losing the battle, they retreated, but more Republican forces were waiting for them along the route. With no supplies, the soldiers had no food and no water, and as they retreated, men died in their thousands from fighting and starvation. Eventually, on December 23rd, the remaining remnants of the rebel force were decisively defeated in the Battle of Sevenay. The survivors, 6,000 soldiers, were executed. This was the end of the Vendée army, but not the rebellion. The other great counter-revolution of the year occurred in Toulon, where after the fall of the Girondists, the remaining Jacobins were thrown out of the town and replaced by a royalist leader. When word reached Toulon of the fate of other rebellious cities, chiefly Marseille, the Royalists called for aid from the Anglo-Spanish fleet. On the 28th of August, the Royal Navy and Spanish Navy committed a force of 13,000 British, Spanish and other allied troops to the French Royalists' cause. The Republic had big naval ambitions, and Toulon was a key naval port. If it was lost, there would be no hope for those ambitions. The leaders in Paris believed, and not without good cause, that at Toulon the survival of the Republic was genuinely at stake. On October 1st, Baron Diembert proclaimed the young Louis Seventeenth to be King of France, and raised the French royalist flag, handing over the town of Toulon to the British Navy. On the 8th of September, the first of the French forces arrived, and over the next two weeks more and more units joined them. By the 18th, there were some 32,000 French soldiers laying siege to the town, with about 22,000 men inside defending it, and just over 70 British and Spanish ships in port. Here at Toulon, we meet a young artillery commander for the first time, the now famous Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon was born on the island of Corsica, and in January 1779 his parents sent him to a religious school in mainland France to learn French. Just four months later, in May, he was admitted to a military academy where an examiner noted that Napoleon, quote, has always been distinguished for his application in mathematics. He is fairly well acquainted with history and geography. This boy would make an excellent sailor, end quote. He finished his studies in 1784 and was admitted to the elite École Militaire in Paris, where he trained to become an artillery officer. While studying, his father died and Napoleon's income was dramatically reduced, but he managed to complete the two-year course in just one year. During the early years of the revolution, he was in Corsica, fighting for the Jacobins in a three-way struggle between royalists, revolutionaries and Corsican nationalists. But after the nationalist Corsican leaders split from France, Bonaparte and his family fled to the French mainland in June 1793. A month later, he published a pro-Republican pamphlet, which gained him the support of Robespierre's younger brother. With these connections, he was appointed Artillery Commander of the Republican Forces at the Siege of Toulon, after the previous Chief of Artillery was wounded. At this point, Napoleon was just a captain, but he was able to pull together an artillery force that could take on the fortress built around the town of Toulon by the British. He mustered equipment, cannons and supplies from the local area and surrounding regions. Using his powerful allies, the people of the region who had just rebelled were blackmailed into giving the republican force animals and supplies. He managed to get a hundred guns for the siege and compelled retired artillery officers from the area to re-enlist. But Napoleon thought many officers were incompetent and wrote the Committee of Public Safety, proposing that the appointment of the General for Command of the Artillery be created, so that they could, quote, command respect and deal with a crowd of fools on the staff with whom one has constantly to argue and lay down the law in order to overcome their prejudices and make them take steps, which theory and practice alike have shown to be axiomatic to any trained officer of this corps, end quote. Next he created a plan where the republican forces would capture a hill where their cannons could fire upon the city's harbor and force the foreign ships to evacuate. During the fighting and counterattacks for the hill and the battery set up there called the Convention, Napoleon was wounded in the leg. I've read one account where having been wounded, a battlefield surgeon looked at the leg and told Napoleon it would need to be amputated. But then Napoleon asked the surgeon to take another look, to which the surgeon replied, oh yes, it doesn't need to be cut off after all. I have no idea how valid this story is, but it's a funny side one. The plan succeeded, and the republican soldiers entered the city on the 19th of December, and the retaliation by the republic was, as always, harsh. Between 700 and 800 prisoners were shot or slain by bayonet. Napoleon was not present when the massacre happened, Recovering from his injuries, he was already headed to his new position in Nice, as the artillery commander for the Italian army. General jacques Francois Dugamere, talking about Napoleon at the Siege of Toulon, said "...I have no words to describe Bonaparte's merit, such technical skill and an equal degree of intelligence and too much gallantry." But what about France's wars with its foreign enemies? Remember at the end of the previous year, 1972, the mostly Prussian army that had invaded France decided to withdraw before the winter and lost all of their gains. The French armies had been successful on other fronts, invading and occupying what is roundabout modern-day Belgium. But with the execution of the king, the coalition grew. By the end of February, Spain, Portugal, Great Britain and the Netherlands had joined the coalition, alongside the Holy Roman Empire, Austria, Prussia and a few other smaller states. The general of the army that had defeated the Austrian-Netherlands, which is Belgium, in the previous year was a man called uh, Dumorez. And at the start of 1793, he ignored orders from Paris, telling him to defend the newly gained territory, choosing instead to invade the Dutch Republic. But the campaign wasn't successful, and he faced fresh orders from Paris to pull back and return to Belgium. Dumorez had many enemies in Paris, even before the failure of his Netherlands campaign, and saw only one way he could save himself from the deputy commissioners of the National Convention who had been sent to inquire into his conduct. He had them arrested, as well as the Minister of War, then handed them over to the Austrians. Next, he tried to persuade his troops to march on Paris and overthrow the revolutionary government, but failed. Domores then fled to the Austrian camp, the major defection we mentioned right at the beginning of this episode. Other members of the coalition began moving on France. The Spanish attacked through the Pyrenees on the 17th of April, on the eastern end of the mountains. The King of Spain, and remember at this time in history most of these European countries are led by kings and queens, chose Captain General Antonio Ricardo to command the army of Catalina in the region. Ricardo's made a great start, first capturing Saint-Laurent-de-Cardeux, then defeating a French army on the Tech River, which caused the French commander to commit suicide. Ricardo's followed these victories with another string, starting on May 19th by defeating Louis Charles de Fleurs, the leader of an entire division. With this, the Spanish forces besieged the fort of Belgrade for a month before the French garrison surrendered on the 24th of June. But now, the levee was supplying more and more men to the fronts. In fact, one estimate was that around this time, France had 1,200,000 soldiers divided into 14 armies, and in the Battle of Niel, on the 17th of July, the defeated divisional general de Fleurs managed to turn the Spanish advance back but the battle was a very costly affair for the French forces. Thanks to the levee, the French were able to swallow these losses, unlike their enemies, and at the end of August, another French army defeated another Spanish force in the Sedan. Over the next four months, both sides won some encounters and lost others, and December ended with the Spanish back on the far side of the tech, holding it with the help of reinforcements in the form of a Portuguese force of 5,000. A separate Spanish force had also managed to capture the port of Collineux on the 20th of December. In the north, the Flanders campaign opened up, which saw Austrian armies occupying the French town of Valences, but the French managed to defeat the Duke of York, forcing him to abandon a siege of Dunkirk, and another French army defeated the Austrians at the Battle of Wattingness, which forced the Austrians to retreat east. The 1793 Flanders campaign actually has a huge amount going on, but we just don't have time to look into it in any real detail. 1793 now rolls into 1794, and we turn to Paris, where Rob Speer was saying, "Quote: The goal of the constitutional government is to conserve the republic. The aim of the revolutionary government is to found it. The revolutionary government owes to good citizens all the protection of the nation. It owes nothing to the enemies of the people but death. Those nations would be enough to explain the origin and the nature of laws that we all call revolutionary. If the revolutionary government must be more active in its march and more free in its movements than an ordinary government, is it for that less fair and legitimate? No. It is supported by the most holy of all laws, the salvation of the people. End quote. The first half of this year is just a long list of people executed in the Reign of Terror. Jacques Air Herbert, the journalist and founder and editor of an extreme radical newspaper, had risen to prominence by helping bring about the downfall of the Girondins the previous year. He continued attacking others he saw as too moderate, including Danton and Robespierre. The Republic finally decided to strike on the night of March 13th, 1794, and had Herbert and his supporters arrested. Less than a week later, they were all guillotined. The Marquis de Condorcet had been forced into hiding after a warrant for his arrest had been issued in the previous year. After eight months, he tried to leave Paris on the 25th of March, but he was caught and arrested just two days later. He had been a philosopher, mathematician, an early political scientist who supported free and equal public education constitutionalism, and equal rights for women and people of all races. After just two days in prison, he was found dead in his cell, and even today the cause of his death isn't known. The most widely accepted theory is that he committed suicide by taking some kind of poison given to him by a friend, though some historians believe that he may have been murdered because he was too loved and respected to be publicly executed. The next big name to fall is a man we have already talked about, Danton who was beginning to come under fire, accused of financial irregularities and misdeeds. This went hand-in-hand hand with the opinion that he was using the revolution and the terror for personal gains. His contemporaries had commented on how financially successful he'd been, and how those gains he'd made could not be fully explained. He was accused of taking bribes, helping his secretaries to line their pockets, and even forging a signet during his mission to Belgium. The most serious accusation laid against him was his apparent involvement in a scheme to apportion wealth from the French East India Company. Back in the old regime, with the king, the French East India Company had gone bankrupt and it was brought back and reestablished by royal patronage in about 10 years-ish before the current events. After the revolution, the company was investigated by the National Convention for profiteering during the war and it was decided that the company would be liquidated. Some members of the convention attempted to get a decree declared that would make the share prices of the company go up before it was liquidated. When this insider trading was discovered, it led to the blackmailing of the directors of the company who were told to hand over half a million livres to people who were known associates of Danton. On March 30th, Danton and many of his associates were suddenly arrested. At the Revolutionary Tribunal, Danton is said to have put on such a great display of rhetoric in his defence that his enemies were worried he would gain the support of the crowd. As a result, the convention fell back on a rarely used bit of law that stated if a prisoner showed want of respect for justice, the tribunal might pronounce the sentence without further delay. On April 3rd, 4th and 5th, the trials of Danton and the Dantonists as his associates were known, took place in front of the revolutionary tribunal. The group of 15 were all found guilty of the charges and ordered executed the same day. As he was taken away to the guillotine, he said, quote, Not a man of them has any idea of government. Robespierre will follow me. He is dragged down by me. Ah, better to have been a poor fisherman than meddle with the government of men. End quote. Having reconciled to Catholicism... A Poor Fisherman was almost certainly a reference to St. Peter and the Reconciliation. Danton believed that Robespierre would come to the same end, and in his final address to the crowd he said, quote, My only regret is that I am going before that rat Robespierre." Danton's actual final words were said to the executioner, quote, Don't forget to show my head to the people. It's well worth seeing. End quote. Two more famous people arrested were the chemists, uh, Antoine Lavoisier and the English-American writer and revolutionary Tom Paine. Lavoisier changed the science of chemistry from a qualitative to a quantitative one. He discovered the role of oxygen in combustion, as well as recognising and naming a number of elements, including oxygen and hydrogen. And he wrote the first extensive list of elements. He also predicted the existence of silicon, and was the first to establish that sulfur was an element, not a compound. One of his many jobs was as an administrator for the Ferme Générale, which was in charge of organising the tax collectors we talked about in the previous episode. This really was a golden age of science, and for the most part the men who pursued science were wealthy gentlemen and nobles. When the revolution broke out, attacks mounted on the deeply unpopular Ferme Générale, and Lavochere was forced to resign from his post on the Gunpowder Commission. On August 8th, 1793, all of the learned societies, including the Academy of Sciences, were suppressed. On the 24th of November, 1793, the arrest of all the former tax gatherers was ordered. In 1794, he was branded a traitor, and on the 8th of May of the same year, all in one day, he was tried, convicted, and guillotined. Tom Paine could get a whole episode of his own – He is one of the most influential writers of his time, one of his most famous quotes, and a great summing up of the revolutions in both America and France. Well, I can't remember the exact thing, but it was something like, the idea of an hereditary ruler makes about as much sense as the idea of an hereditary mathematician. He was welcomed in France at the start of the revolution after being thrown out of Britain for being too radical. But once in France, he found himself arguing against the execution of the king and coming under attack for not being radical enough. He was regarded as an ally of the Girondins and was eventually arrested in December of 1793. After seven months' prison, his name was finally put on the list of prisoners to be executed. I've read a story slightly differently, depending on what the source is, and either Payne had his cell door open because he was deathly sick with a fever or because officials were visiting him. But whatever the reason, his cell door was open the day before he was due to be executed. When prisoners were listed to be executed, the Gola would mark the prescribed cell's door with a white chalk. Because Payne's door was open, the inside of his door was chalked, and during the night he closed his door. The next morning, the prescribed prisoners were collected. When they got to Payne's door, they couldn't see any marks, and so didn't collect him. Payne is one of the few lucky ones to actually survive the terror. But the terror was about to come to a dramatic end. Following the deaths of many men of power, Rob Speer was the sole remaining powerful individual. But you can only go around chopping off people's heads for so long before not only you create some real enemies, but also your allies start to worry that they are next on the block. A number of conspiracies began to revolve around Rob Speer, and on the 26th of July, Rob Speer's fate was sealed when he gave a speech to the convention in which he railed against enemies and conspiracies. He didn't name names, but now everyone in the convention had a reason to fear that they were the targets. The next day, a man called Tallien denounced the tyranny of Robespierre in front of the Committee of Public Safety. The attack against Robespierre was taken up by other members, and Robespierre himself, present at the sitting, leapt to his defence but he was shouted down with cries of, Down with the tyrant! Arrest him! Rob Speer looked for supporters in the committee, but found none. He and his few supporters took refuge in the City Hall, but troops were sent there to arrest him. The convention declared Rob Speer and the men with him to be outlaws. When the troops arrived at the City Hall, many of Rob Speer's friends and even relatives either tried to flee or commit suicide. Rob Speer himself was shot in the face, but there are differing accounts as to how this happened. One source saying he attempted suicide, another saying he was shot by one of the soldiers. The shot shattered his jaw, but it wasn't fatal. Overnight, Rob Speer was locked away in the Committee of Public Safety, where he lay on the table bleeding. A doctor was brought in to tend to the wound, and this is where Rob Speer's last words are recorded, quote, Merci, Monsieur, end quote. Later, Robespierre was held in the same containment chamber where Mary Antoinette, the wife of King Louis XVI, had been held. The next day, Robespierre was guillotined without trial. The executioner tore off the bandages, holding the remains of his shattered jaw in place while clearing Robespierre's neck. Reports say that this caused Robespierre to produce an agonising scream until he was silenced by the guillotine. Rob Speer's death marks the end of the reign of terror. Official records show that at least 16,594 people were killed, but historians note that as many as 40,000 prisoners alone may have been summarily executed, without trial, or died awaiting trial. The Revolutionary Tribunal condemned thousands of people to death by guillotine, and at times, mobs would beat other victims to death. Some died for their political opinions or actions, but all too many were killed for no reason beyond being suspected of something, or because others may have gained politically, financially or personally from their deaths. As many as 72% of the people executed were workers or peasants, accused of either hoarding, evading the draft, desertion or rebellion. Throughout the rest of 1794, there was a real backlash against the remaining Jacobins, and the club was finally closed on November the 11th. Elsewhere in France, the last of the revolts were put down. The rebel army in the Vendée had been crushed at the end of 1793, and in January of 1794, the scourged earth policy was put in place. The region was utterly destroyed. Farms and their crops, forests, and entire villages were burnt to ashes, along with the mass killing of civilians, with no care given to combatant status, political affiliation, age, or gender. As many as 50,000 people were slaughtered in the massacres of January to May. In one area alone, the Republican forces captured maybe 15,000 Vendians. Of those, 6,500 were either shot or guillotined, and some 2,000 died from disease. General Westerman reported to the convention that, quote, The Vende is no more. According to your orders, I have trampled their children beneath our horses' feet. I have massacred their women, so they will no longer give birth to brigands. I do not have a single prisoner to reproach me. I have exterminated them all. The numbers of dead in the Vendee can only be estimated, and these estimates are wildly different depending on the source, but the figures from both sides in the region start as low as 117,000, and go as high as 450,000. All of this in a region whose population before the outbreak of the rebellion was just 800,000. If those higher estimates are accurate, that could be as many as half of the people in the Vendée dead in, what, a year of fighting? French historian Renard Schietcher wrote a controversial book in 1986 called A French Genocide, the Vendée where he argued that the actions of the French Republican government during the war was the first modern genocide. Other Republican armies were successful in fighting their foreign enemies. French forces turned from their defensive stance against the Spanish army in the southwest to an offensive one, launching an invasion of Spain across the Pyrenees. In the north, the French sent three armies, two to Belgium and a third to the Rhine. The opening battles in the north hit the French hard, but they were able to recover and take the initiative, driving the Austrians, British and Dutch across the Rhine and occupied Belgium, the Rhineland and the southern Netherlands. A little further south along the middle of the Rhine, that third French army launched two attacks against the Prussians, successfully breaking through Prussian lines but they didn't really follow up the victory, allowing the Prussians to successfully counter-attack, pushing the French back and leaving this area of fighting largely unchanged at the end of 1794. In the southeast, at the Alps, the French had already stopped the Sardinian army, but the counter-attack launched by the French failed, and this front also remained largely unchanged. In the wake of the end of the Reign of Terror, a new government was set up called the Directory, but it was made up of a lot of the old members of the Convention – After the fall of Robespierre in July 1794, Bonaparte was put under house arrest at Nice for his association with Robespierre's brothers, but he was acquitted of any wrongdoing. Napoleon's name was already strong when it came to technical skill, and he was given command of the ragtag force thrown together to defend the convention in the Tuileries Palace, after a royalist rebellion broke out in Paris. Napoleon was picked because one of the key men behind the end of the Reign of Terror knew artillery would be key to the defence of the palace. In the fighting that followed, 1,400 royalists died and the rest fled. For saving both the convention and the new directory, Napoleon shot to fame and found himself gaining a great deal of wealth and even patronage of the directory and was promoted to commander of the interior and given command of the army of Italy. It was around this time that he met his future wife, Josephine. So let's talk about the new directory. It was a body of five directors that held executive power, and with it, many people thought the revolution was finally coming to an end. The mood in Paris and across France was one of exhaustion. Everyone was tired of the violence of the terror, and the two dominant sides through the last decade those supporting the monarchy and those wanting to restart the terror, were almost all dead and didn't have enough supporters to implement either of their goals. Also, with their foreign enemies no longer banging on the doors of France, the country was no longer gripped with the same fear it was two years ago. But the Directory was made up and supported by the same, now thoroughly corrupt, members of the Convention, with the same instinct of self-preservation. But the people weren't happy, and the directory was actually deeply unpopular, and the majority of the population wanted to get rid of them. But they were too weary to try it by any means other than the ballot boxes. When the elections went against them, they prolonged the war and ignored the constitution to stay in power. But the directory also had other pressures to keep the war going. The country's finances were in an awful state, and the government couldn't meet with what they had to pay without the plunder and the tribute of foreign countries. So it was military success that kept the Directory going. In the year it was set up, 1795, the French had great success in the north. In the middle of winter, they launched a surprise attack against the Dutch Republic, supported by the Dutch people. The French helped start the Batavian Revolution. After the fall of the Dutch Republic, the new Batavian Republic was set up, which supported the revolutionary causes of France and signed a peace treaty that gave some territory to France. Watching with horror was Prussia. And after the Netherlands fell, Prussia left the coalition. They signed the Peace of Basel on 6th of April, ceding the West Bank of the Rhine to France. The Spanish, after losing several more battles, also sued for peace and ceded territory. The French army in the Pyrenees was now free to march east and reinforce the army on the Alps. In November, the newly combined army fought in northern Italy at the Battle of Launo, beating the Italians and opening up the whole Italian peninsula for the French. The next year, two days after he married Josephine, on March 11th 1796, Napoleon left Paris and took command of the Italian army. Getting straight into it, he beat the Austrians at the Battle of Lodi, and although he faced a setback after losing a battle at Caldero by Austrian reinforcements, he fought back to win a crucial battle over the bridge of Arcole, allowing him to move against the Papal States. Italy at this time in history was not a united country, and Italy was just the name of the peninsula that made up multiple states. One of them that spanned the peninsula from east to west was the Papal States that included the city of Rome. The Directory ordered Napoleon to march on the Eternal City, a shadow of its former self, and, and had been for centuries. But it was still the home of the Pope, who the Directory had told Napoleon to remove. But Napoleon was worried this would create a power vacuum that would be exploited by the Kingdom of Naples. So ignoring the directory, Napoleon took his army into Austria itself, where he forced the country to negotiate a peace. What came out of it was the Treaty of Leoben, giving France control of most of northern Italy. Famously, a secret clause in the agreement promised the Republic of Venice to Austria. Napoleon marched into Venice, forcing its surrender and bringing an end to more than a thousand years of the city's independence. In a rather sad move, he gave his soldiers leave to loot the city, stealing countless treasures that would be brought back to France. During this campaign, Napoleon's fame and popularity grew and grew. He applied conventional military ideas to real-world situations, which had a great effect on his military triumphs. These ideas included using artillery as a mobile force to support his infantry, saying, quote, I have fought sixty battles and I have learned nothing which I did not know at the beginning. Look at Caesar, he fought the first like the last." But Napoleon also had enemies, especially as his political aspirations appeared to be growing. His enemies attacked the way he looted through Italy and some warned he might be becoming a dictator. Napoleon responded to his critics by sending a general back to Paris who purged them and led a coup that left his republican allies with greater control over the government, though they were wholly reliant on Napoleon for support. At the end of the campaign, Napoleon returned to Paris in December 1797 and was greeted as a hero. There he began planning an invasion of Britain, but after two months he came to the conclusion that France's naval power was not yet strong enough to confront the Royal Navy, at least not in the English Channel. Instead, he devised a plan to seize Egypt and therefore undermine Britain's access to its trade interests in India. Napoleon took the plan to the directory and a report was written by a man called Talleyrand, who was France's foreign minister and had helped Napoleon devise the plan. He stated, having occupied and fortified Egypt, we shall send a force of fifteen thousand men from Suez to India to join the forces of Taipu Sahib to drive away the English. The directory gave him their backing, and so Napoleon launched his army. Along the way, they stopped off at the island of Malta, at the time controlled by an order of knights. Many of them were unwilling to fight their fellow Christians and countrymen and eventually surrendered the island after just a token resistance. But it would be a key naval base for Napoleon in the coming conflict and in taking it, he lost only three men. Napoleon's fleet managed to avoid the Royal Navy, reaching Alexandria on the 1st of July 1798. In Egypt, his first job was to defeat the ruling military caste called the Mumluks. He first won the Battle of Shubra-Kit, which allowed the French to practice defensive tactics, which were put into excellent use later that month at the Battle of the Pyramids, fought about 15 miles from the actual pyramids. The French army was about 25,000 men strong, and it's estimated the Mamluks had about the same sized force, but thanks to his expert tactics in defence, Napoleon lost nearly 29 men, while the Mumluks lost something like 2,000 The next month, on the 1st of August, a British fleet, led by Horatio Nelson, arrived and captured or destroyed all but two of the French ships during the famous Battle of the Nile. Napoleon was now isolated in Egypt. The success of the French in Egypt was only temporary, as revolts across the country began to break out. So in early 1799, he moved an army into the Ottoman provinces of Damascus, now modern-day Syria and led 13,000 French soldiers along the Mediterranean coast, capturing the towns of Arish, Gaza, Jaffa and Haifa. Jaffa was made famous after Napoleon found many of the defenders were former prisoners of war who were supposed to be on parole. Enraged, he ordered the garrison and 1,400 prisoners to be executed by bayonet or drowning to save bullets, not even sparing a single man. Over the course of the three-day sack, men, women and children were murdered. In May of 1799, his army badly weakened, Napoleon decided to abandon the region and return to France. There are conflicting reports, but some say that he ordered all his soldiers who were sick with plague to be poisoned in order to speed up the retreat. While Napoleon had been in the Middle East, war had broken out in Europe with the creation of the Second Coalition, and once again, France was at war with Austria. France had suffered a series of defeats in the war, but by the time Napoleon returned, they were back on firmer footing. But the Republic was now completely bankrupt, and the Directory was growing more unpopular by the day. The Directory discussed Napoleon's desertion, but was too weak to punish him, and despite his failings, Napoleon once again was greeted as a hero. Now, back in Paris, he began plotting a coup to make himself ruler of France. The biggest potential obstacles to a coup were in the army, with some generals who honestly believed in republicanism, while others didn't. Napoleon worked on the feelings of awe, keeping secret his own intentions. Before the coup, troops were deployed around Paris, and the plan was to first convince the directors to resign, and second to get the House of Legislators to appoint a commission that would draw up a new constitution to the plotters' specifications. But the deputies had, for the most part, realised they were facing a coup, and with this, Napoleon stormed into the chambers of one of the legislative bodies. There, he faced resistance and heckles, but he addressed them nonetheless, and moved on to the other legislative body, where he met even greater resistance. In fact, fighting actually broke out, and Napoleon was assaulted. His soldiers intervened and dispersed the council, effectively ending the Directory and the Revolution. Napoleon and his allies intimidated commissions into declaring a provisional government. There was no reaction from the people in the streets, proving that the revolution was truly over. Bonaparte completed his coup and became first consul, a position he would hold for 10 years. His power was confirmed by the new constitution, which was accepted by a direct popular vote. The new constitution preserve the appearance of the republic, but actually establish Napoleon as a military dictator. The republic was now over, and there would be no more representative government, assemblies, councils, or even liberty. <laughs> In the next episode of Rise of the Regicides, a decade of wars will follow as France takes on pretty much every nation of Europe in a truly global conflict, with fighting not just in Europe and the Mediterranean, but across the Atlantic Ocean, in the West Indies, South America, and even into Asia and the Indian Ocean.